this afternoon. If you have a copy of the Bible there in your seat, to open it to the final chapter of the first book of the New Covenant, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. And I would like to read verses 16 through 20. And I've entitled this message today, Pursuing a Life of Radical Obedience in this present age. And I believe that it'll be one of a number of sermons in this series. One of the songs we sung today spoke of us following the Lord. What does it mean to follow the Lord? There were 12 that the Lord chose to follow him. And he called them his disciples. 2,000 years later, he is inviting us as his disciples to follow him in this present age. And I would say that the, the believing church of Christ is going to need the strength of the Spirit of God and the Scripture to radically obey the Lord in this present age. And two words come to my mind when I think about how to advance the kingdom of God in the midst of the mess that is everywhere. And those two words are found in a little epistle written by John, one of the disciples of the Lord. And a number of times in those three epistles he writes, he uses two words, truth and love. Our age is desperately in need of knowing God's truth. Everyone has their own truth, my truth, and it's true. Everyone espouses to their own truth, their own thinking, their own whatever, but that is really not the issue before humanity. It really isn't. The issue before humanity is whether or not we know and follow God's revealed truth. That's really what it all comes down to. And the problems that are, we are facing today are really spiritual problems. And so when God's truth clashes with everyone else's personal truth, which one should yield? 
for the best of humanity, for the best of individual lives, each one of us should yield to the truth that the maker of heaven and earth has given to us. I've only been on earth for 64 years. I do not know everything. Don't ask my wife. She might tell you I know nothing. (laughs) She knows me well. I don't have all knowledge. Do you? Do you have all wisdom? Of course not. Neither do I. So I am very dependent on something outside of myself to be truth. And God is calling his people to unapologetically speak his truth. And yet, if you seek to do that without the second word, which is love, you will not have the impact that is needed in this generation to help people. You don't get very far in this culture if you will go face to face yelling and screaming and hating people because their understanding of life and truth is different than the biblical truth. Matter of fact, you'll be called a hater. And that is just one of the many words that you will be called. So what we must cultivate in our lives is a love and a respect for everyone. Love and truth. And the Bible calls us to speak the truth in in love. And you can have an impact. You, You can have influence on people. I had a very long conversation with one of my neighbors this past week. And he and I are definitely on a totally different page when it comes to a number of things. And yet with gentleness we spoke one to another, me respecting him, affirming the love that I have for him. And indeed it's real. And he saw me outside the building and came up and began to speak with me. And he told me, you know what? He said, I have found on numerous occasions an incredible love that comes from this place. I've met people from Texas and people from the Carolinas and even people from New York that have just been very loving and welcoming to me. That's how it should be. Because you and I are not warring against flesh and blood. There is a greater war out there, and it is against principalities and powers and forces of darkness in this age that are binding the hearts and lives of people. And they need deliverance. They need desperately the gospel of God. And then they need to be put on a footing of discipleship that will invite them to follow the Lord. 
And we're going to discover in the weeks ahead that the Lord has told us what we are to do this year, 2023, in Manhattan. No question. We have a mandate. We have a commissioning. And that commissioning is to make disciples, to make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a commissioning. And we're going to discover that it involves us going, interacting with people all around us, everywhere we go. And we're going to discover that it involves sharing the gospel of God, this message of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And we should preach it the same way that John the Baptist preached it. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Lord picked up that same message because God's gospel has always been the same. It is a gospel of repent and belief. And when folks have repented and they have believed, then the Lord says we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, we then are to engage in lifelong teaching. Teaching everything that the Lord commands us. It becomes a life of radical obedience to the Lord. That is why I've entitled this beginning sermon in this series, Pursuing a Life of Radical Obedience in This Present Age. We're going to get help on how to do this as we move forward. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Some of you are aware of the fact that the beginning of this year in Canada, matter of fact, on January 8th, that Canada passed a law in their parliament. It was a law that was passed without a whole lot of debate. But in that law, they described, now get this, It's myth to believe 
that heterosexuality and cisgender is preferable. It's a myth. In other words, if you teach marriage and faithfulness in marriage, and you give instruction that premarital sex is immoral in the sight of God, that God does not give his approval to adultery or fornication or bestiality or pedophilia or homosexuality, if you teach that, it's myth. And if you would dare say that the gender that a child is born with is their gender that they ought to identify with. That's who they are. If you teach either one of those things, you are breaking the law in Canada and you are subject to even five years of imprisonment. Did you know that was just passed in January in Canada? And did you know that just last week, last Wednesday, a pastor in Canada went to a public school library where there were children who had come for story hour in the public school library. And the story hour was presented by queer men. And I saw a video of that. And all of the contortions that they were going into and the swings that they hung from the ceilings, spinning all around in front of these children, sexualizing these children. And that pastor went in there and just protested. I mean, you know, this is an opportunity. Why can't I go in and protest the sexualization of children in a public library? You know what they did with him? You can see it on video people that were in attendance, threw him out with force and hurled him to the ground. You can watch it on video in Canada. And then a few days later, the police showed up at his home and arrested him. And he was charged with mischief and causing a disturbance at the children's drag queen story time. That was just last week. <clears throat> Recently, in the state of Arizona, a school board met February 23rd just last month. School board of five members. Three of them are LGBTQ. And they voted, that five-member board voted to unanimously, unanimously voted 
break a contract that they had had with the university, a Christian university of Arizona. That Christian college had been sending their students to that public grade school for their teaching practice. My wife is a teacher, and so before she graduated, she had to go into a public school and to teach. It's part of their training. They had had a contract with that Christian university for 11 years. And they voted to get out of that contract, and the reason for that is that these Christians, with their biblical value system, pose a threat to any LGBT students that might be in the school. So dismiss them. This is just the beginning. I hope you understand that. Just the beginning. And so we have got to be equipped as the people of God to know how to literally love our neighbor. Not with viciousness. Not with hatred. But a loving speaking of truth unapologetically and preaching the gospel of God and those who have repented and believed and entered the kingdom of God to begin to help them grow in their knowledge of God and learn what it means to follow Christ in obedience speaking truth This place has been welcoming to literally anyone and everyone who comes in. Now, I've had to ask some people not to come back because they caused a disturbance or they were vocal against people that are here, vehement. They were vehement. They were threatening. I stood at the front door of this church a number of years ago and had a man grab me by the throat and begin to squeeze my throat. I mean, we face things like that here in the city. And yet you will see a welcoming spirit. I've had many LGBTQ people in my chapels. And we've welcomed them to hear the gospel of God. And I've had conversations with a number of them afterwards. And I, and I always say, you know, I love you. Yeah, we know you do. We need God's truth for this age. And we need to know how to share the gospel with these dear people. God help us. We're living in an age where the most recent Supreme Court justice could not define what a woman was. You imagine that? They're going to sit on the highest court in the United States and they don't even know how to define a woman.
and all the cases that come before the Supreme Court that involve a woman, how will they be able to decide a case like that? I don't know. We're living in an age where men are allowed to participate in female sports. How fair is that to ladies? We're living in an age where children are being mutilated as young children. And we've given our stamp of approval on that because it is big business. And some of these children, as they get older, you know, they say, you know what, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have never done that. And they're struggling. What an age. Will we be silenced? Will we refuse to speak out because we're afraid of being canceled? Because we're afraid of the opposition that might come, the vitriol, the hatred? Or will we, with the strength of the Spirit of God, be able to love our neighbor as we speak truth? God help us. I want you to discover in this text that these final verses of the first book of the New Covenant literally summarize all the major themes in Matthew's gospel. Matthew doesn't have a thing to say about the ascension of Christ. And yet the final verses in his book are the most important thing to Matthew. And it is the commission that the Lord gave his church. They are the Lord's final words. And the Lord's final word should be our first concern. And to help us understand how important those final words of Christ are, the thing that he gave his disciples before he left 2,000 years ago, he is going to structure his book to focus on those final words. These final words include the authority of the Lord, all authority. Matter of fact, we're going to look at these verses over a period of time with the emphasis on the word all, all authority, all the nations, all that I command you, and I'm with you all the days. But he's going to speak of the Lord's authority. And that is why in, the, in, 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 the, in, in Matthew's gospel, he's going to divide his book with the teaching of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus. There are five major sections on the teaching of Jesus because we are to teach people to observe all that he said. And these 
sections and discourses on the Lord's teaching are oftentimes followed by chapters that deal with the deeds of Christ. And when you look at the deeds of Christ, you'll discover over and over and over again in Matthew's gospel, he's talking about the authority of Christ. The Lord's ministry begins in the regions of Galilee in chapter 4. And it is fitting that the Lord ends his teaching ministry with his final words on a mountain in Galilee. Now, why is that so important? And while will you find over and over again the Lord teaching in Galilee? He spent his major ministry in the regions of Galilee. He lived at one time in Capernaum, if you've ever been over to Israel. They're on the top side of the Sea of Galilee is a little town called Capernaum. I've been there. You can literally see the, the stones of a synagogue that was there in Jesus' day. And on top of those stones, they built another synagogue. And you see the difference in color. And right next to that synagogue is a place that they say was where Peter's house was. And it's like it's a stone's throw from the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. And it is Galilee of the Gentiles. Did you know that? Galilee of the nations. Now, why would the one who instituted the new covenant minister in Galilee? Oh, my friends, we will discover that the program and plan of God has always involved the nations of the world. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the seed of the woman in the Garden of Eden and reverse the death sentence brought on humanity by the disobedience of Adam. And you start reading through that old covenant book, and you come to the Abrahamic covenant, and God told Abraham, he said, Abraham, you're going to have a seed, and that seed will be a blessing to the what? The, all the nations. And his very ministry is illustrating that new covenant work. In other words, he's going to have a universal scope. You see, the kingdom of God is universal. It is for everyone. It is for every tongue and tribe and nation. I am a citizen of the United States, but there are better than 200 countries in the world that I could live in that I could be a citizen of if I were born there. My friends, American citizenship is not the most important citizenship to me. I am the citizen of the New Jerusalem. And I have entered the kingdom of God. very nature of what it means to be a disciple. He, he ends the gospel with telling us to make disciples, and yet you read the book of Matthew, and it's loaded with references to the disciples. 
Matter of fact, the first reference to a disciple is found in chapter 5, which, by the way, is the first reference to a mountain in Matthew's gospel. And so this commission ends on a mountain in Galilee with a command to make disciples. Are you tracking with me here? With the structure of this incredible gospel? And, of course, I mentioned his teaching with the five discourses woven between the deeds of his authority. And then he ends this great commission by telling us, Lo, I am with you. In the original language, it says literally, all the days. Clear up to the consummation of the ages. Five times in Matthew's gospel, he mentions this expression, the consummation of the ages. But I'm with you. And how does the gospel of Matthew begin? He talks about his name. And then we're told that he is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Some of the thoughts that have come to me as I've begun studying for this series is practicing the presence of Christ. And I am seeking to do that in my life. The Lord is with us. Do you understand? He's with us today. We don't see him, but he is with us in spirit. And he will never leave us or forsake us. So in this endeavor to make disciples, to understand what our commission is, what our first concern should be, I would draw you to this thought, which is found in verse 16. The disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. If you and I will ever be who we need to be for this age is number one, we have to have a willingness to meet with the Lord. Meet me at the mountain. Our ministry in this place will only be effective if we are willing to meet with the Lord to have communion with the living God of heaven. We don't know the exact time of this meeting, but it was after, obviously, his resurrection and prior to his ascension. It was most probably at the very end of these 40 days that he was here on earth. And during those 40 days, he continued to preach the message he preached all of his ministry years, and that was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There's a realm that you can enter. I'm the king. Enter that realm. Submit your life to me and follow me. I have all of the authority. Enter it. He preached that message. But this appearance in Galilee he had spoken about three times previously. Before he was ever crucified, he told his disciples that he would meet them after the resurrection in Galilee. And twice in this chapter, verse 7, 
and verse 10. He says, Galilee's the destination. I'll meet you there. On a mountain. Have you ever thought of that? Why a mountain? The mountain, though we're not know, we don't know specifically which mountain it was. Do you know how many times a mountain is referenced in this gospel? The very temptation of Christ involved the devil taking him to a high what? Mountain. In chapter 5, the very sermon that he would preach is called the Sermon on the, on the Mount. It would be on a mountain that he would choose the 12 disciples. Oftentimes, the Gospels say that Jesus retreated to a mountain to pray. And on one occasion, it says that he was praying, and he looked off, and there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples were in the midst of a storm, being tossed by that storm, and the Lord walks on the water out to the... Remember that story? But he was on a mountain praying. And while this might not be the exact location, there is a mount that they will take you to over in Israel. And you make your way all the way up to this mount, and you're walking and walking, and then you come to the edge of this mount, and bursting right in front of you is the Sea of Galilee. And it could be that the Lord was on that mountain praying. References made in the 15th chapter to the healings that took place on the mountains and probably all of us are familiar with chapter 17 where the Lord went to a mountain and we call it the Mount of what? Transfiguration. The final week of his ministry. In the middle of the week on a Wednesday night, he would cross the Kidron Valley and go into the Mount of Olives. And he would give to us two chapters of teaching in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24 and chapter 25, and the Lord would tell us what's going to happen in the time of the end. You see, we have a lot of information in the Bible that the world doesn't have. Given to us on a mount, and then after the Passover meal, he would cross the Kidron Valley again and go to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. A mountain. Now why? Why a mountain? The Lord entered in to a covenant relationship with those he redeemed from Egypt at Mount Sinai and gave them the terms of what is referred to as the Old Covenant. And how fitting that covenant was to be a covenant of obedience. You obey 
and you'll get life for your obedience. You be righteous. Follow everything I've commanded to do, you to do, and it'll be your righteousness. And if you're righteous enough, God says you can dwell in my house forever. You can be in the land forever. But they couldn't keep that covenant. And God would say that there's a new covenant coming. Matter of fact, I am, rather than demanding a perfect, perfect obedience from you individually, what I'm going to send is the righteous one, my own son, who's going to live a righteous, sinless life for you. And he will be the covenant for you. And when you enter into this new covenant work with him, your life is going to be radically changed, your thinking is going to change, and you're going to have a desire to know who God is. And you'll know me. From the least of you to the greatest of you, you'll know me. And that work will be done by the Spirit of the living God. And he will put my law in your heart. And so the direction of your life will change and you will want to obey me. And so, in the first book of the new covenant... In the final chapter on a mountain, the Lord says, make people that will follow me, teaching them to observe all that I command you. What a glorious thing. And so I would say that our ability to do this work has everything to begin, everything to do with us, number one, being willing to meet with the Lord. Are you willing to meet with the Lord? Are you willing to meet with the Lord daily? Are you willing to meet with the Lord in his word? Are you willing to meet with the Lord in prayer? Do you talk to the Lord every day? Are you willing to meet with the Lord with his people, and obviously you are willing to do that. You're here today. But it all begins with being willing to meet with the Lord. And you and I are never going to have any impact on the world unless we're willing to set aside a dedicated time and a dedicated place to meet with our Lord. Many people never go to meet with the lost because they don't even bother to meet with the saved. Many people never bother to speak to people about the Lord because they never speak to the Lord. There's not genuine public prayer because there's not any private prayer. That really burdens my heart as a pastor. Number one, it causes me to look my own life and say, Bill, are you meeting with the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you practicing the presence of Christ? Because I believe that if we were privately meeting with the Lord, our public prayer meetings would be vibrant. It wouldn't have to mean long prayers. Just because you pray a long prayer doesn't mean you make you holy. Matter of fact, the Lord said, let your words be what? 
few. May they flow from your heart. But the problem is God's people aren't praying privately. And may I hasten, because I see another thought. That is that when they saw the Lord, they worshiped him. You see that in the text? They worshiped him. And the theme of worship is found in the gospel of Matthew 2. The gospel opens with those wise men coming and rendering Christ worship. Remember that in chapter 2? In chapter 14, you have the disciples worshiping him in the boat, this one who has the authority to calm the sea. After his resurrection in chapter 28 and verse 9, there were women that were worshiping him. And the devil tried to get Christ to worship him, but Christ responded, there's only one person that should be worshiped, and it's God. And yet we see the Lord Jesus Christ being worshiped. And Matthew wants us all to learn that there is no incongruity between worshiping the one true God and worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, we are to honor the Son as we honor the Father. Do you see Christ as worthy of worship? If you are not willing to meet with him, if you are not willing to worship him, you'll not be used in his great commission. There's a third thought here. Uh, It says some doubt it, right? Isn't the Bible transparent? Have you ever doubted in your life? Oh, I know I have. I went through a period in high school where I I doubted a lot of things. Matter of fact, I doubted if even Africa was on the other side of the globe. I'd never been there. I'm supposed to believe it's there because I read it in a book. I doubted whether the Bible was the truth of God. I'll never forget that period in high school when I was so low and so depressed Because of my doubting, my foster brother came to visit us one time in North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, where I was living with my foster parents. And, of course, I lived on the third floor uh, all by myself, my own bedroom and bathroom in this old Victorian home. And he was there to visit, so he was sharing the room with me. I didn't know he was going to walk in on me, but that particular day I was laid straight out on my stomach, and I had my nose underneath the radiator right next to the window. And I was so low and so depressed and so doubting. He walks into the room. I didn't even hear him coming. And he said, Bill, what are you doing on the floor? The only thing that I could say to him is it's the lowest place that I can get. But then I read a passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. And in that text, it talked about the savage enemy and the promise of Christ that he would establish me. And I held on to that text for months until he lifted me. 
Oh, I know what doubt is. So did Thomas. And so did these people. Now, Matthew only talks about the 11 being there. But this occasion probably is the occasion that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 where there were over 500 believers that Jesus appeared to before his ascension. It is to that group of 500 that he gave this commission. And some of them had never seen him before. They had heard that he was going to meet them at the mountain. And so these, this, the, the, the 11 are gathering and these throngs are coming with them. And they're on the mountain and then the Lord appears. And maybe some of them who had never seen him really doubted, could this truly be the Lord? Did he really rise from the dead? Was he really seen? I mean, mark it down, my friends. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin. If he did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins, and we're the most foolish people that have ever lived. But if indeed he reversed death, the sentence on humanity from the very beginning because of disobedience, separation from the God of glory who's holy and righteous and just. If he truly accomplished something at Calvary, if he truly took the death sentence, if he truly satisfied the justice of God and the righteousness of God, if he truly bore the sin and paid the debt, and rose from the dead. If that is true, then our faith is certain. And you're going to see in Matthew's gospel that he focuses on faith and unbelief. And I don't believe these people had really a, a wrong doubt. I think they were just being honest. They just didn't know if the Lord was really resurrected until they saw him. But look what the Lord did. The text says he came up to them. Isn't that wonderful? He came up to them, he approaches them, and he begins to speak to them. And he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. No need to doubt anymore. You see, there were those in the book of Matthew that believed they were they were Gentiles they were from the nations his disciples might struggle as he records in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 they might struggle to believe in chapter 8 in a boat or on the sea in chapter 14 or by the shore in chapter 16 or even after the transfiguration in chapter 17 the disciples faith might be little and yet from the regions of Galilee, from the nations of the world, there would be the friends of the paralytic who let him down. There would be the Roman centurion in chapter 8. There would be the woman with the discharge of blood in chapter 9. The Canaanite woman in chapter 15. Some believed and some doubted. But to the doubter, he drew near. So if you and I are ever going to be used of the Lord to impact this age, this present evil age, in bondage to the arch enemy of mankind, we're going to have to be willing to meet with the Lord. 
We're going to have to be willing to worship the Lord. We're going to have to be willing to grow in our faith. And finally, we're going to have to be willing to submit to the authority of Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth. All the power, the right to use power. All of it is given to the Lord. And that is why Matthew, in structuring his gospel, beginning from the first chapter, running all the way to the end, is going to focus on the authority of Christ. Matthew 7, there was authority in his teaching. Matthew 8, there was authority in his healing. He had authority over nature in chapter 8. He had in chapter 9 the authority to forgive sins. In chapter 9, the authority over all disease. In chapter 10, he had authority over Satan, and he gave that authority to his apostles. In John's gospel, you can read he has the authority to give eternal life. And my friends, his resurrection demonstrates he has authority over death. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And so we are going to move through this present evil age speaking the truth in love. But because we love God first, we are going to bow the knee to the one who has all authority. The Canadian government does not have all the authority. And there's not a single school board in America that has all the authority.